This episode of Full Stack Radio is brought to you by Laracasts. Laracasts is the de facto community and educational resource for PHP developers of all skill levels. Whether you're new to Laravel or you're hoping to level up your dev team, Laracasts was constructed entirely and exclusively for you. It's a lot like Netflix for your career. I think there's over 500 videos on there right now covering all sorts of topics from Laravel itself to different backend tools, front end frameworks like Vue.js and React, design patterns, how to get better at Git. There's something on there for everybody. So check it out if you have a chance at laracasts.com and thanks again to laracast for sponsoring full stack radio enjoy the show hey everyone welcome to another episode of the full stack radio podcast where i talk to people in the software industry about everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and system administration i'm your host adam wathen as always and today i'm here with mark Otto of github and bootstrap fame how's it going mark really well how about you good man so Lots of interesting things to talk about. I know everyone's excited that uh, you guys put up the Bootstrap 4 Alpha not uh, too long ago. So that's pretty awesome. How's that been going? Oh, man, I, I'll be honest. Uh, I have, I've barely spent any time on it. I feel a little bad, but the reception has been really phenomenal. I was looking at um, some of the source code last night, some of the contributions, and people are really into it, and uh, that gives me a lot of hope. It's, uh, it's exciting to be able to rewrite your code base every now and then and have people like that you rewrote the entire code base. So yeah, it's good. That's awesome. I've kind of been looking over it and kind of seeing the stuff that you guys have been changing, but I'd be curious to hear from your point of view what you think some of the most like interesting or important changes uh, have been that you've made since Bootstrap 3. Well, uh, to start, I mean, just to give a little context, Bootstrap 3 was released over two years ago. Um, it was actually two years ago, on again, on our birthday, August 19th, that we released it. Um, and that one saw, just as much as V4 did, saw a long time of development. So uh, Bootstrap 3 is starting to show its age a little bit, I feel like, just in terms of some of the, the techniques that we've used, the fact that we don't have so many forward-facing um, uh, CSS techniques, say, for example, and things like that. So um, V4 was a way for us to, just like every major rewrite that we do, every major version generally means a major rewrite so that we one, keep ourselves interested, two, keep the code base really lean, and three, really do all the cool stuff people want to do now and in the, in the near future. So that's what we set out to do. So um, biggest changes you'll notice coming from a CSS side is that we switched from less to SAS as a preprocessor of choice. Um, we might do a couple of things on the build tooling side to change from grunt to gulp. That's still up in the air. But um, the reason for the SAS change was uh, the less from less to SAS was just that the level of community around SAS seems to be much larger than the less community. And um, it seems like the SAS uh, language and preprocessor is actually still constantly evolving. I don't agree with all the decisions that are being made to the language and stuff like that, but the amount of tooling out there and people using SAS over less is uh, significantly larger than, than less. So um, that was kind of important to, to appeal to. I kind of feel like uh, you guys were almost keeping less alive, really, as being like the you know biggest project that was still using that as a their preprocessor. Yeah, I still really love less, honestly. And uh, most people don't know. They ask a little bit about why, or you know, normally they're like, "Why the hell aren't you know using uh, SAS and stuff like that?" Um, and uh, the question is just, I feel like it's uh, a false dichotomy there. Like it's not one or the other. Like you can use both. You can use it's, uh, that or a stylus or whatever else you'd like or post-CSS, the assumption that it has to be one or the other is uh, it's not something I, I'm, I'm like super keen on. And the thing about less that's super awesome, uh, at least when I started using it years ago, was that it was a JavaScript file that I included rather than installing a Ruby gem. And it's like, what the heck is a Ruby gem? Like five years, this is me like six, five, six years ago. 
when I started working on it, so I was like, I have no idea how to install that. I'm working at Twitter. I barely know how the dev environment works in this thing. And I'm like, <laughs> why would I ask anyone else to install a gem? Like, how's that going to work? So the fact that it was just a, a JavaScript file that I included after the style sheet in the head was huge because I could just share those snippets of code with people across the entire company. They could just put it in and boom, it's there. It's ready yeah. to go. So, so it's really easy. Yeah, the accessibility and the approachability was so easy for less compared to SaaS. And I, I still feel like that's the case, honestly. Yeah, that makes sense, I guess, especially if like you're not really too concerned about like how the pre-processing happens in the actual kind of deployment process. If you just yeah. needed to be able to spin it up locally and be able to test out that your your pre-processing stuff is working as expected, it doesn't really matter if you take that like little performance hit by just including it in the browser. Yeah, absolutely. For all the local development and all the internal development at Twitter when it, before it was open source, that was that just made things so much easier for myself, for our regular developers, our, our ops people, uh, folks on like legal or biz dev, stuff like that. They were all building stuff with Bootstrap internally, so it was super cool. You actually you uh, you mentioned performance stuff like that. That's actually uh, something that also that really mattered to us. Less historically was compiling way faster than SAS than Ruby SAS. Now that libsass is a thing and it's been rewritten in C. Man, libsass blows away less. So uh, the compilation times for us, like, it's huge because we're generating our docs. You know, it's a decent amount of CSS um, still. So um, that's that's kind of cool. So you guys are just depending on uh, whatever like libsass supports. I don't really know enough about like I know like for a while there, libsass was like a little bit behind or wasn't keeping up quite as fast with the the Ruby sass stuff. But uh, libsass is kind of your target. Yeah, libsass is definitely the target. All the build tooling right now in V four uh, for Bootstrap though still supports. If you have the Ruby version or the the C version installed, it'll use whichever one is available. And you can also then specify if you have both, for example, set up. So, but it will default to the to libsass, and I know it has lag behind a little bit, but um, I haven't run anything any major, and I rewrote the entire thing on it, and uh, didn't really run. There is a forget exactly what it was, but um, I think it's since been addressed, honestly. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, I honestly, I actually personally prefer less. Um, I don't really use like a ton of preprocessor features, and the ones that I do use, I feel like less is a little bit less verbose like creating a mix in and less feels like cheaper than it does in sass like it's less characters to type i kind of like that you can mix in a class with less which you can't do with sass or like the uh the import reference thing is pretty cool but definitely mm -hmm. the community around sass is bigger overall and the feature set is bigger overall i'd be curious to know like you're not a huge fan of Tons of preprocessor features, right? Yeah, the I've given this talk a couple of times, um, and it's got the super vain, super creative uh, title of MDOular CSS <laughs> instead of modular CSS. Um, but one of the points that I make is um, keep it CSSy, um, keep it really simple, keep it really approachable. Um, whenever you get too far down the rabbit hole of preprocessing, you re it really clouds your vision of what the output is going to be, and as Designers and developers, you really need to care about the output more than what you're inputting, right? Like, if I have to write a few extra characters, that's A-OK -okay in my book because it might save me, you know, dozens to hundreds down the line, right? So I care very deeply about having CSS that compiles and looks great and feels great, has great file size, um, has low number of repetitive declarations, low number of uh, unique colors, that kind of stuff, CSS stats, and... Um, Parker are really great tools for like analyzing that kind of stuff. So um, when you're when you get in the mode of using nesting kind of recklessly, um, unnesting, going back to the at root or and things like that, um, extending all those kind of things, it really it really just makes the, the CSS more difficult to use. Same with um, 
was it uh, maps or something like that? I forgot how how it was working. But um, you can do some pretty complicated stuff. Um, and less being based in JavaScript, for example, you can also write like some crazy JavaScript in your CSS. And it's like, to me, that just doesn't make that much sense because the, the vast majority of people are uh, still coming up and they're just like, wait, what is a preprocessor and why do I need to use that? Why doesn't, why doesn't CSS just have that? So, yeah, as we appeal to like the wider audiences, having the fewest technical limitations to reading the code, not only writing the code, but just reading the code and making some sense of it is hugely important for me. So Yeah, for sure. Do you think there's like different strategies that people use when they're taking like sort of a more CSS first approach to using um, a more pre-processor heavy approach? Like what do you think some of the differences are in how people approach writing their, their style sheets? Yeah, I think there really is. I think people have a tendency to over-engineer CSS as a way to simplify it. You simplify it to the point of adding complexity. I forgot where I got that phrase. I think it was uh, during my time at Twitter. It might have been from my old, one of my old bosses. But um, you work so hard to like, just reduce the, the complexity of just looking at something. But it's simple for you because you have all the context and you wrote it, you designed it, you made it. Um, but as soon as you bring in somebody else, you start to like pick up all these pieces of like why this might be difficult to understand or why it's in incomplete context and stuff like that. So um, I've joked a couple of times on Twitter about rewriting Bootstrap, the next major release, just in vanilla CSS, just to <laughs> see how people would react. Overall, people were just like, no, you can't be serious. But um, it's interesting because a lot of people don't know much of the intricacies of CSS. What they're used to writing is just SAS and then everything else just happens. There's, there's like even basic things, and I, I've written about a couple of these things on, on uh, my site, CodeGuide, CodeGuide.co. Uh, it's the way of like how I write CSS and HTML and why. And then I also have something called WTFHTMLCSS.com, <laughs> and it's just like common misconceptions, common gotchas for like what people maybe don't know why or how CSS behaves a certain way. So like there's even basic things on there, to me basic things, of... If you do a float, say float left, you don't need to declare a display. The only reason you would ever need to declare a display is if you need to support IE6, and in which case you'd use display inline. But you still see folks doing like display inline block, float left, and then a number of things after that. And so it's really easy for those things to all stack up too when you're just using mixins or when you add all these other complexities on top of that, that kind of code. So I think it's great if people learn to write just vanilla CSS really well. Because if you can write vanilla CSS really well, you can write less in SAS and preprocessed CSS even better because you understand a little bit more about what's going in and what's coming out rather than just this weird intermediary which you can do just about anything. Yeah, I think that uh, the WTF HTML CSS thing that you did was actually awesome and there was lots of uh, little things in there that I, I didn't know about like something that's bitten me a few times that I can never really debug or understand was the whole thing about how if you're going to have like floated elements you have to have them first in the DOM mm -hmm. otherwise like sometimes when you refresh the page things are like shifted down in weird ways but it's not always like that and sometimes it works and sometimes yep. it doesn't yep. things like that lots of really uh, useful tips on there one of the things that um, bit me a lot when I was really obsessed with like trying to use really pre-processor heavy like CSS techniques was doing stuff where I'd end up basically like mimicking the whole DOM structure in the uh, CSS to try mm -hmm. and like avoid having to put classes in my HTML as much as possible. You know, this idea of trying to do some crazy purist markup or something. Mm -hmm. I'd be interested in your take on that in general. Yeah, I think um, so. this kind of gets into the, the realm of BEM a little bit, right? Is that where you're going? Well, I mean, there's a couple different uh, strategies for it, but that's definitely yeah. something I'd like to talk to you about as well. Yeah, um, a number of like the, the CSS methodologies or architectures kind of um, promote reiterating 
the relationship of uh, specific selectors to one another by being really explicit with not only their DOM structure, but explicit naming conventions for even doing that. So there's some levels of depth there. Um, I think in certain situations, you want to map your classes as well as you can to specific markup. Um, when you're, and it, it differs, though, based on the context. For something like Bootstrap, which is a framework used by literally millions of people in millions of different projects, we don't know going in where you're going to use it, how you're going to deploy it, what else you're going to add on top of it, how you're going to even remix all the components. I'm still finding new ways of like, hey, I wanted to do this with this, and now I've got this other you know, brand new component that I, is a mashup of like three other things that you made. Can you please support this and kind of stuff? And it's like, we don't even know what you're going to do, really. So we have to be super specific and super objective as much as we can. And so for in V4, we took this to a little bit of an extreme. In V3, we took it to the opposite extreme. In V3, for something like, uh, say, uh, navigation links, navigation, you, you tend to have nav and you tend to have sub-nav, especially with, like, say you have tabs or pills and, and you have a drop-down within that nav. What you really need to do is limit the cascade of cascading style sheets. So what you do, an easy way to do it is to use angle brackets to tar target only the immediate children in your select. So we end up doing dot nav angle bracket uh, li angle bracket a, and that way it only affects the first anchors and the first list items of the nav. And so when you put in a drop-down menu that is built on a U, uh, an unordered list and has list items and anchors in there, it doesn't inherit that stuff. So what you're doing is you're just kind of closing things down to make them a little bit more encapsulated so that they don't interfere with one another. And that's one way to do it. You can do really specific CSS. The downside is all the selectors look amazingly insane. Like, they just they look infinitely more complex because you have multiple levels in there. The specificity of it is through the roof because it's three levels deep and it's immediate children. So overriding it is not that easy. So what we did in V4 is we, re we rewrote all of those basically to be classes only. So instead of having three elements nested in there, it's going to be .nav for the wrapper for the base thing. We have this thing called like a nav item, which is a class that we can put on list items if you want list items, but they're not required anymore. And so now we have .nav item and .nav link. And the link will go right on your anchor. So if you want to use a, an unordered list with list items and anchors, so be it. But if you want to just use a nav component, nav element with anchors inside, that's A-OK -okay too. You can just go through and just roll with that and you'll have no problems whatsoever. What's great about that is actually I saw something on Twitter just the other day about accessibility of um, screen readers, um, whether or not they announce all list items now. And I think there's something about them not doing that in certain situations. Um, I think it was Roger Johansson. Uh, I forgot exactly what it was, but there's some concerns too about the overuse of lists and things like that. So um, another just a small side point there. But the idea that you have to map those things one-to-one -one all the time is something that's just one of those things where you're just like, that just doesn't make sense for, you can't make those, you don't want to make those blanket kind of statements there, like figure out what works based on the component or the context overall, so. Yeah, that's actually interesting. I was going to ask you about that, actually. Uh, you know, you kind of answered it, but the the idea of, you know, trying to find the right balance between using descended selectors to kind of like make it easy to use this stuff in your markup without having to add a class to every single element versus using classes to avoid like the specificity stuff. sounds like you guys are leaning more and more towards uh, more classes and less descendant selectors in the bootstrap code base. Yeah, what we did in V4 um, is we tried to make a concerted effort towards minimizing the number of uh, elements in our selectors and going towards classes. And so that's reflected in those more custom components, but it's also reflected at the base level of the organization of our CSS. So 
Um, previously, we were we override a couple of things for just global elements. Um, and so when you want to say left-align uh, table heading cells, THs, to start, they're center-aligned, but we wanted to left-align them just so that everything was aligned in your tables, that kind of thing. You have global margins maybe on tables or field sets and legends and different various types of inputs. So we had all these element selectors and element and attribute selectors in our, in our CSS, and those are globally affecting people's CSS. And that's okay. I think there are some global resets that are good resets, but people th were, they were unexpected. And so what I did, went through and did is kind of overhauled the relationship of those uh, attribute and element selectors from our class selectors and our actual custom components. So now we have this new component, this meta component called Reboot. And Reboot basically is the consolidation of all of our element and attribution attribute selectors into a single style sheet that builds on top of normalize. So where normalize is an unopinionated reset to normalize things across different browsers, ours is definitely opinionated and says, okay, in addition to that, we need to reset all these other things to remove some headaches for you down the line. That includes box model, that includes some global restyling of different inputs and stuff like that, just to make things behave the same with one another. But you won't find any of those other selectors now in, say, like our actual form CSS or our table CSS or our nav and stuff like that. It's all going to be classes for that. And that's going to allow folks to use different parts of Bootstrap to whatever suits their needs. So if you just need normalize and a good reboot, then go ahead and use that, and you'll be set. You can build on top of it really easily. But if you need, and if you need that and our grid, you can take just our grid, just run with those things. And you don't need to take any of the components with. It's really easy now to pull those things out. Awesome. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I noticed something else that you guys did is you switched from using pixel units for most things to uh, relative units like M's and REMs. What was kind of the thinking behind that? We actually backtrack a little bit on it. Um, we haven't. It's been a while since we released the first alpha. It's been two months now. Uh, I've just been swamped with with GitHub and a couple other things. And um, but we rolled back the grid changes uh, instead of doing the grid in M's. They're now using pixels again. And we did that because viewports, it doesn't matter. There's no M's. The CSS doesn't measure your viewport in M's. It measures it in pixels. And the mental burden of going through and mapping pixel dimensions to M's and back and forth is just something that we didn't want to do for people. So the containers and the media queries are back to pixels. And that does make sense because it's not relative. It's not inherited. Like, you can't scale those things up. They won't change. It's yeah. just tied right to the viewport, which is done in pixels. Yeah, so. when someone's thinking, like, this is how it needs to look on an iPhone or something, they're thinking of, like, what's the iPhone's resolution? They're not thinking of yeah. what is the weird relationship between whatever my base font size is and whatever the actual device size is. So, yeah, that makes a lot yeah. of sense for sure. We have stuck with REMs and M's in a number of other places, though, still. And i got to figure out the relationship here because it's it's something that could really screw people up down the line if we don't try to think it through really thoroughly. And that's those changes and those like far-sweeping like underlying decisions is what's delayed me from doing the next alpha most of, most of all because I haven't had time to really like devote myself to like thinking all of it through. But on the um, the M side, um, we use M's a little bit in V3 right now. I think we only use them on our label component, and our label component is when you want to do like a little uh, solid background color with white text. You might see it like as a new or like an asterisk, like an unread count kind of thing, badges and stuff like that. Um, so we want those relative to the parent container. So when you put them in like a, a heading element, they look great next to uh, the content there. And when you put them in nav, it scales down and it's appropriate to the, the font size relative uh, to the parent. So we use M's a little bit like that. And then we use REMS even more for typography. And I started using it for sizing our elements too because 
most of our uh, sizing our components, and most of our components are based around you know assuming a certain font size. So if you can instead of uh, assuming exact pixel values, if you can just change the the type size, the the font size, and let these things scale a little bit, if you figure out a good ratio, that just kind of simplifies the development and customization process down the line. Um, so if you change from 14 pixels to 16 pixels, everything just kind of goes and scales up nicely. And that's really great for responsive because now, uh, for responsive design, if you want, you kind of want a little bit smaller font size, and on bigger screens, you want a little bit, a little bit bigger. Now that's a super common pattern. It's much easier to do that in V4 now that we're using relative uh, units everywhere. So yeah, that's something I've been thinking about more and more lately. Like the idea of kind of when you're trying to decide, like, okay, I'm looking at this button or whatever I'm making. It's got some padding above it and below it, and to the left and right. Like, what is actually dictating how much padding I want there? And usually, mm-hmm. it's like the font size of the stuff inside. Like, if this font size was bigger, would I want that padding to change? Yes. Then, you know, then it's a good candidate for using uh, the relative sizing stuff. The one thing I noticed that I'd be interested to get your opinion on because I think it's it's different than what I expected you guys to do was um, with like the buttons. You have like I think it's still three button sizes, right? Like a small button, mm-hmm. a standard button, and like a large button. Yep. And you guys are using. Um, rems for the padding on the buttons so you have to have like a different value for the padding on the small button than the medium button than the large button i was when i was looking at originally i was expecting that you guys would have done it where you had just like m's for the padding and then you could just change the font size and the you know the relationship or the proportions of the button would scale with that without having to have like you know manually overriding those properties for the different sizes was there like specific decision making put into that um that made you guys decide to go that route yeah, I mean, you definitely get some font size. You get some uh, component and element changes when you do just the font size, but it's kind of hard to keep those. Ra- I just talked about the ratios and stuff like that. Changing the finding something that works for all of those is definitely something that's a little bit more of a struggle, honestly. Um, and not only doing the buttons, but doing inputs that are sized um, relative to that as well. So when we, one of the big tougher things that I, I went through was when you have, um, like, say, a stacked form and you have input, 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 button, you want the left text to be aligned within all those inputs and buttons. So on like a large button, I think it's 1.25 rem is the horizontal padding. And we might have downsized that on inputs because it was a little bit too much. But uh, we want those things to be different enough on the button sizes that they can be really clearly seen as um, having more presence or less presence on the page if you want large or small. Um, it's something that's on my mind. I don't have a good answer for you yet on why we have to do that if we're relying on the ratio of font size to the relative units and stuff like that. But it was something that I felt that I needed to override still. Um, going in, I was hoping to not have any of that, and I haven't had a, a good amount of time to see if there's a way that I can get away from doing that. I think it still makes sense and in, in for some reasons, right? Like, I think um, if you just let everything kind of scale proportionately forever, then you kind of have this like unlimited kind of sea of choices to choose from as far as like how you size your components instead of just having like some standardized like component sizes that lead to a little bit more consistency in your UI, I think. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. You stated it really well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think I think it's a, a good way to do it. And I wouldn't have thought of doing that way until I looked at uh, how you guys were doing it. So I was interested to get your take on it and kind of think about it a little bit more. Because the more I think about it, the more it seems like a, an interesting way to do it. And I think there's a lot of benefits to it. Um, something else I noticed that you guys added to Bootstrap 4 is all the a lot more utility classes and stuff. Yeah. 
kind of like probably like four years ago, three or four years ago, the idea of like utility single purpose classes was like a total taboo. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Nobody wanted to put these things in their, in their markup that were like describing visual changes that you wanted to make to like the elements and stuff. Uh, What was kind of the thinking behind all the utility classes and stuff? And when do you use them personally? Well, I mean, people have been asking for them for a while in V3. I guess V3 has been out for two years and at least the last year alone, it's been, pretty significant that people are asking for it. But um, what we found was, so we launched this side project uh, on top of Bootstrap. It's called the Bootstrap Themes. It's our official themes. And so we were using Bootstrap to build high-quality themes, like additional toolkits, basically, in addition to Bootstrap's toolkit, Bootstrap as a toolkit. So a lot of custom components, a lot of custom layouts, things like that. What we were realizing is that I was constantly overriding these things. The default values for margins and paddings and uh, position uh, and things like that. And we've had some utility classes throughout uh, Bootstrap 3 and even Bootstrap 2. So pull left, pull right was definitely for, you know, quick floats and stuff like that. Um, text coloration, um, weights and stuff like that we've had for a while. But we didn't have anything for overriding margin and padding. And if you look ever at your, if you like run your CSS through your stats, if you don't take this approach right now, you'll see some change over time. But <clears throat> some of the most repetitive classes or some of the most repetitive properties and declarations are just around margin, padding, color, font size, and things like that. And people have already made like utility classes to repurpose those things. So like you have your heading styles, H1 through 6, and then you also have dot H1 through dot H6 for classes for that. So you already have a lot of utilities around that stuff, but nothing, no one's ever really addressed margin and padding. It's so easy to have so many margins and paddings that are so different so slightly different that you want to be the same, but you're just like, nah, you know, I could do this differently, so I did it differently. And that just ends up ballooning your CSS out a little bit more. And so there's this, uh, for a while it's been seen as definitely as impure, of like having so many classes. In, in practicality, it doesn't usually end up being that many. If you're ending up with like 20 classes per, per element in your HTML, you, you're taking the wrong approach. If you're looking at it like, hey, I've got this nav bar in here, and after that, I've got this other content. You know what? I want this nav bar to like really, really breathe. So I'm just going to add, you know, uh, margin uh, large. That's it. And I want a lot of breathing room all around it. So you just triple the margin all around it. Oh, perfect, done. It's really great for prototyping, and it's just as good for production, honestly, because you're eliminating a lot of the overhead of your CSS. So some of that will get stripped down in gzipping and stuff like that. But you got to balance those kind of things with your actual ability to come in and write code effectively uh, as an individual and as a team. And so to the degree to which you use those things is definitely up to the team and to the project overall. Um, but uh, my biggest pushback was I didn't see a lot of validation in things. And with the rise of stuff like uh, base CSS and tachyons uh, from a couple of folks and more people writing about how they're writing about their CSS and stuff like that, it definitely gave it more weight, and so it kind of swayed me to definitely try it out. And once we tried it out, we we were kind of hooked, the development team for, like, themes and stuff like that. So it's been super helpful to have. Yeah, I think it's really, really awesome. Like like you were saying, like, when you put that stuff into classes, instead of just kind of overriding it, like, per piece of the page when you need some additional padding, you kind of get that, like, consistency for free where you've kind of defined, like, well, this is what a small margin looks like, this is what medium margin looks like, and this is what, you know, a big margin looks like. And now you don't have, like something has a 13 pixel margin, another thing has a 14 pixel margin, another thing has a 12 pixel margin. It's totally brutal trying to 
I mean, that kind of like you, you kind of see that on a page without really knowing what it is that's making something just look geometrically like inconsistent. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like, uh, one of the things that I've thought about for like why CSS is as important and prominent as it is, it is today is because of designers embracing CSS as their way to, you know, come in and start code and express themselves on the web by writing code more than just producing static assets. But CSS was kind of seen a little bit as like an art form early on. You know, a few years ago, people were making like Homer Simpson in CSS, this moving coke can in CSS. We had all these CSS playgrounds and, and experiments, and I did a ton of them myself, and I saw so many people do so many cool things. And now you have awesome stuff like CodePen and JSPen and JSFiddle that people just go and like mess around with front-end code to do cool stuff. And pushing the boundaries of, of CSS and making it super accessible like that and just doing all these neat things has kind of really like lend itself to like having a little bit more of a designer approach to front end code. And what I mean by that is like coming up with constraints, coming up with balances and ratios and systematic ways of approaching how you're just putting in those otherwise uh, arbitrary pixel values, right? So when I design an input, I want that input to be sized relative to the button. And when I design a series of a, uh, of typography and typographic elements, I want these things to feel like part of a family. They should feel like they go together. It should feel like content breathes. It should feel like some of those pieces of content go with other pieces and are a little bit more spaced away from everything else around it. So there's really like, there's subliminal like design decisions that go into a lot of this stuff. And when folks have all those inconsistent margins and paddings, you can kind of, for me, I can tell like, hey, does this person like taking more of like a design approach to this or are they coming from a more development background? Whatever works, you know, does it. Like as soon as I'm trying to, if I ever have to like set a custom value, I'm going to think, I'm trying to step back and think, why am I setting a custom value? Why isn't this just the thing for all of these things? Why am I doing one-offs? Whereas um, a lot of like bug fixing and like really rapid and iterative development environments can encourage the, the former where it's like, oh, I'll just add this one other thing and it'll be done. So there's a, there's a lot of like subtleties that I feel like that are coming into front-end development, CSS in particular, that are really interesting from a design perspective. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think there's definitely a big difference in like the look you end up with when you're designing like in the browser versus designing in, you know, Photoshop or whatever. And then someone has to try and translate that pixel for pixel into CSS. You end up with a horrendous style sheet usually mm. when you're trying to go with the ladder approach. Yeah, for sure. You were kind of talking before about like uh, before you started using the utility class stuff more, you'd end up having to do stuff like, oh, I need to override the margin on this one element of this one page. Something that I always found hard there was like, you have to come up with a name for this extra class that you're going to stick on this thing now just for the sake of moving this margin. And mm -hmm. if you're not thinking in terms of utility classes, usually you end up trying to like create these like content specific class names or like namespacing the page and using descendant selectors or all this like crazy kind of ugly hacky crap. I think like one of the biggest benefits of the utility stuff is, is kind of like removing that, you know, taboo around being able to use classes specifically for like visual structuring and stuff and not feeling feeling guilty about it um i read uh you know nicholas gallagher obviously right the guy who put together yeah. uh, normalize and works at twitter now he had like this like brilliant article that he wrote like a few years back called like about uh html semantics or or something and he he said at the end of that article something like it turns out that um using utility classes and using like kind of visual class names in your html ends up being way more practical and maintainable than trying to keep like your HTML pure solely because maintaining HTML is like so much easier to grok and wrap your head around than trying to like do like 
wizardry CSS stuff in style sheets and dealing with the cascade and all these unexpected uh, issues that come up when you try and, you know, keep your HTML super clean. Is that something that you think about much? Yeah, he and I have talked about it a little bit. Uh, we worked together when we were both at Twitter a little bit. And uh, he and I and Jacob uh, Fat, who works on Bootstrap with me, is, we've, we've all hung out and talked a little bit about this kind of stuff. But he's, he writes amazingly insightful things. And uh, his project for uh, Suit as well is, is super, super, super great. And high quality, just thinking th- concepts through and how they, they apply and everything. There's, there's definitely people really... I do the same thing, and I feel like I'm making blanket samples as well now. But like, it's really easy to latch onto one concept and only be open to doing that. And it's really easy for for us to like for designers, developers, for anyone really to just say, okay, this is the only way to do it. This is the only way that works for this. I feel like a lot of those things have come out of uh, situations in which people weren't building truly things, weren't truly building things at, at scale. So Nicholas, he's coming at it from two from like nowadays, like working on Twitter. And Twitter is a massive code base where, you know, for massive millions amount of people and a lot of other folks are coming at it from like very small projects. So the rules for how you write CSS even changes based on just like the audience for who your team is and who it's getting served up to, but also just the relative size. Like is it a big monstrous web app or is it like a super simple website? Then the rules can kind of change and be super flexible. But um yeah, the the idea that you can only do one thing with your CSS and HTML just doesn't make much sense to me. <laughs> I like Nicholas's approach, and like when people start talking about semantics, um, I feel it's probably an even bigger bike shed than tabs versus spaces <laughs> um, in your code. Um, only because everyone tries to redefine semantics, which is so funny because the semantics is like whatever brings you the most meaning here, right? Sure. And like when you talk about certain elements being more semantic, uh, I actually just had a thread today on Bootstrap about it. Um, somebody said, hey, you need to use more HTML5 elements because it's way more semantic. And I was like, okay, I'm thinking about semantics in the context of, um, I look at it and like, the meaning and affordance that comes to an element is different uh, to some elements. So like a div has no affordance. It's not hooked up to any browser APIs. It will not behave differently. It will just be. And what's interesting is header, aside, article, footer, and all those other uh, HTML5 tags like that, they're all in the same boat because you literally have to declare display block because there's nothing else going on with them. They have meaning to the structure of the document, which is important, um, but that's a little bit different than the semantics of just like what this element is and what it's supposed to do independent of those other things. Then you look at something like a button, and a button element should be a button. It behaves like a button. If you click it, it will do things. If you click a div, it doesn't stop doing anything. It's not going to do anything. So that's that's why it's bad when you use like a span or a div and you make it behave like a button. That's a semantic problem. Like that just shouldn't happen, just because there are actual browser behaviors that's mapped to the meaning, the semantics of that element. There's the other argument that people are talking about. It's like, oh, this is way more semantic because uh, you know it's it's as objective as you can be, but those weird abstractions just don't map to anyone's actual thinking or application of the code that they're writing. Um, if I want something to be floated left, I'm just going to be like left, right? I don't want to have to think of like start and end. I know that's actually a really good argument for uh, for or against RTL, uh, stuff like that. But you want to remove the mental barriers to writing this code. Like as soon as you add all, all these barriers, whether it's on build tooling, preprocessing, or literally just all the rules on how you write your code, 
it just gets tiring, you know, and it, it just leads to worse code, honestly. Yeah, it can be paralyzing too sometimes, yeah. like having no idea, like, oh man, I got to come up with some like really amazing semantic name for this. And now mm-hmm. you're just like sitting there not getting any work done because you're hung up on, on something like that that ultimately is probably going to cause more problems than it's going to save. Yeah, absolutely. And realistically, you have probably you probably have bigger problems that you should be solving, right? <laughs> for sure. Like, that's yeah. not to be dismissive of people that care very deeply about those things. It's just... In my mind, it's focusing on the wrong problems when you're trying to figure out how to write your code better. Do you think that ties into why, like, you like? I watched that MDOular CSS talk that you gave, right? And you kind of gave some some tips for how you like name stuff. And uh, you kind of seem to be a bit of an outlier in kind of the modern CSS <laughs> world because everyone else is hopping on like the BEM train or like even uh, Jacob wrote that article for Medium about like all the naming conventions and stuff uh, they use. And you're just like like short, easy words with dashes in between don't care yeah. at the end <laughs> yeah um there, there's a couple aspects that go into that one i don't want to like hold up people from writing code um and i don't want people to try to draw false relationships between things this is actually it's that's probably actually that that point's probably a bigger problem for like variable assignment where you set like a single variable and then you use that you reassign that variable for like five other components there's a bad habit of drawing direct relationships between things just because they might have the same or very similar uh, values for different declarations. So you got to know in your mind like what actually needs relationship and what doesn't. And so for me, what I just want to do is write the best CSS possible. And the big thing that I, the the catchphrase I guess that I have there is like, look, selectors and the way you write your selectors, do whatever the hell you want. I feel like using just dashes and single words, single words, like is the easiest approach. Because uh, it doesn't tell anybody, like, this is how you need to do it. It's like, hey, this is just an easy way to do it. The focal point, though, needs to be what's between the curly braces. Because that's what matters. Um, if you have duplicate properties or if you have a property order, if you, anything else like that, it's what's between the curly braces that matters most. The actual behavior and functionality of those classes, that's something that you and your team and your company can figure out. And, like, those things still should freely differentiate between whatever team or whatever whatever project that you're working on. Uh, there's a second aspect to it of uh, having identifiable classes. And I just went through this a couple months ago where I was trying to, we had um, in, at GitHub, our button styles were kind of kind of whack. Um, we had dot .button, uh, fully spelled out the word button, and then we had dot .mini button, all one word. And what sucked is we have the button class, but we also have a button element, and then we have a button role, and then we have a button type. And so all those different values and all those attributes could be a button. And on top of that, then, we have a mini button, which is also a button, and it can be any of those elements. And then we have a helper class in our Rails app that can be a mini button helper. And it was a really weird way of thinking about it. And all of our classes were actually chained, or not, not chained, but uh, comma-separated to do it. So we had duplicate selectors for all these things rather than like a family of classes that actually work together. But when I was trying to find these classes, it sucked real so bad because I would search for button and I would find everything. Like half the code base. Yeah. yeah, and I couldn't rely on, say, like this button being in the middle of the, the select or the middle of the class attribute or the start of it or the end of it. And I could probably have figured out some like regex way of doing it, but I don't want to be figuring out some regex pattern yeah. for how to find a class name. I just want to find the class name, you know? Yep. Um, so that brings in the, sec- the third part of that is like the grepability, the searchability of those things. Um, dot button is a, is a fantastically focused class, I suppose, but dot BTN is one that I prefer to use because it's shorter. 
it's easier to put as like a prefix to everything else just because it is an abbreviation. And it's something I can search for so quickly. And I don't have to think about, you know, searching for button, but don't include this or include the dot and don't include the dot for making a class versus a potential actual value for an attribute or anything like that. Also for things like, we just went through this actually with a, an, a, an extension to primer internally. We're adding um, like uh, display classes for our headings. And so instead of just using a heading element, we can do like build on top of it, make it really big, light, and that kind of stuff, uh, lighten the font weight and increase the font size. And we we were just going like, hey, we can do like alpha, gamma, you know, alpha, gamma, beta, that kind of stuff for the, the different class names. And we thought that was really cool, but they were it was just dot alpha. And so it was like, okay, if I'm looking at that, what, what does dot alpha mean? And what's to stop somebody from having like an alpha button and just using dot alpha? So if you don't scope it and prefix it, by the component that it applies to, it can apply to anything. So when I was working on those buttons before for GitHub, we had button as a mini class, we had danger button, and then we also had somebody just had a danger class. And so the danger button actually changed the button colors text, but on hover it applied more color as well. But the danger text class only changed the text color because it was only meant for text color. But people were just using them interchangeably, and that led to some really, really bad code where it's just like, wait, I don't know why is this thing not behaving. It kind of, oh, that's it. It's using the wrong modifier class. It's just like, oh, man. So creating systems in which you can create identifiable um, families of classes that have prefixes and modifier classes, it's super helpful for finding code, keeping code quality up, and, and things like that. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting. Uh, well, you mentioned that primer project. I thought that was really cool because... Um I mean, it seemed like there was like some mixed reactions when you guys put it out. Some people were like, oh, yeah, this is cool. Other people were like, like, why is someone putting out another thing that's just like bootstrap or, or whatever, right? Like bullshit. But mm-hmm. um, the thing that I thought was cool about it that I think kind of like went under the radar and was underappreciated a little bit was that like this is like GitHub's CSS and they are able to put it online and you can pull it down and use it because like the strategy that was put into building it was done in such a way that it's not like coupled to all their markup and all the stuff that they're doing it's like written like library css which i think is a really interesting approach to writing css is that like a conscious thing do you think uh that's something that people should be paying more attention to so yeah there, there's a couple things you said there that uh, are super interesting to me um one yeah i was so primer has been has existed for years and i've been at github for over three years and it was here before i even started i was made by this guy john rohan and the css team that's here before me uh and i ended up just working on it a ton because i work on css all the time and it was, I think it was over the holidays last year that i decided i was like hey we should probably open source this and my thought process there was why is this secret i have no good reason to keep this to ourselves we should open source it. And it's not about like, hey, we did another thing. Use this over Bootstrap Foundation or uh, 9CC Grid System and all those other things you know, that what the people have like said, use this over this in the past. That's not the point, right? The point is to just like share the knowledge and like say, hey, we're putting this out here. We made this thing. It might be of use to you, but hey, I don't know why I would keep it secret that I'm working on writing CSS. It's not giving any secret sauce away. It might be giving away some of our styles and stuff like that that makes people uh, use things that look like GitHub, but people are building GitHub integrations all the time. I think it's finding the balance for how you can make something that integrated with GitHub and look a little GitHub-y is kind of important and, and super helpful. And so the idea that people are just like, oh, you know, not another one. And like the other thing is like not another JavaScript framework, not another <laughs> MPC framework. I'm like, that is such the wrong attitude, you know? And I, I, it makes, I really actually I struggle not to curse there quite heavily <laughs> but it's just like that just riles me up because it's like why 
do, does anybody need your approval for like what should be open sourced? Why is it so upsetting for people that somebody made something, some team made something, <laughs> and put it out there because they're proud of it and they just want to like share it? It's like, why is there anything wrong with that? You can like go through and like critique the overall quality of it and like reflect on that, but that rarely happens. It feels like, and so for me, like I was just looking, and I was like, yeah, we got no reason not to share this. Let's put it out there. I think it's fantastic to put it out there. We've got some people contributing to it every now and then. It's definitely designed for us, right? Like it's built for GitHub.com. And so we actually have internal extensions that we're working on right now that modified for our uh, marketing pages because GitHub.com is not responsive. So we don't have a responsive grid because we just never needed it. There's a ton of things we didn't put in there that we just never needed to share. And so we're trying to figure that kind of stuff out. But we definitely have approached it to try to make it independent wherever possible and take a very modular approach to writing the components because that's just how we're writing it and everything else. And we want to make sure that we're reducing our overhead for overriding things, that we're finding patterns that we can establish and then work with. It's super important to write your code like that. And it's an interesting exercise to think about, as a designer myself, to design individual pages and then to design the components that build that, those, that page and all the other pages up. So it's super useful to, to think about it in those senses and, and write it that way. So yeah. yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me to design things in a way where you're creating like a set of building blocks instead of just like building pages. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Definitely. I realize this, uh, the, the, the reality check for me on that part actually came uh, four years ago when we were working on Twitter.com. We, a couple of us were rewriting the, the entire thing in 2011 when, when Jack came back the first time. And um, we had all these things and our prototype looked fantastic. And then I was like, wait a minute. All these things are, so there's like two things that I had that were reality checks. Two things. One was like the cascade was like coming into play. And so that's why I went uh, like class route and the descendant selector route. And the second one was, okay, I've got all these designs from the rest of the design team. They're still cranking in Photoshop, doing all these things. And I got to go write the HTML and CSS form. And I'm looking at it like, okay, so that, that avatar full name and like uh, display name uh, or username that one's different than the other instance of that over here, which is different than the other instance of it. So we had like four or five ways of displaying, you know, an avatar on the left with a full name and then a username below it. And I was like, yeah, I'm not coding that four different ways. Here's one size. Make it work, right? Yeah. So it was just a great way to think about your designs because, like, you can get really stuck on those things when you're just working on the mock-ups. Uh, and you can subconsciously just make all these changes and tweaks and then you know, all of a sudden you're thinking of just like, hey, I did whatever looks good rather than thinking about how you balance whatever looks good with a systemic approach. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. Maybe that's a good place to start uh, wrapping it up. Is there any uh, anything else that you want to chat about or anything before we get going? Mm, no, not really. I think we covered, we covered a full gamut of things. We had <laughs> some emotions in there. We got a little fired up about open source. I love it. We talked a little bit about CSS methodology. I think that was super cool. I'm excited to get to talk about Bootstrap 4 a little bit. Um, I really want to get another alpha out. I'm afraid it's not going to happen until uh, some holiday breaks. I'm trying to take a some time, a little bit more time off around the holidays this year to to chill out and do a little bit more open source. It's definitely suffered a little bit as I'm focusing on GitHub and uh, new uh, director of design duties. So right on. Is there anything uh, you want to plug or anything before we go? No, I don't think so. I mean, I'm pretty chill with that kind of stuff. <laughs> There's nothing personally that I, I need to push forward, except that um, in the context actually of some of the conversations we had here, I'd say. If you're at all hesitating to share things, don't don't hesitate. Like if you're looking to open source something, jump in. It uh, it can definitely be hostile sometimes, but um, I think that people can benefit from just being 
good at what they do and sharing their ideas and asking for feedback and just putting stuff out there. I know it can be daunting sometimes and a little scary, um, but for every uh, jerk-off that's on there that's looking to ruin your day, there are 10 to 20 other people that just want to see you do awesome stuff, even though they don't know you and stuff. So I would, I would just end on that high note, that positive note, like just keep doing awesome stuff and everything will be all right. Awesome, man. <laughs> what's, the, uh, what's the best way for people to keep up with what you're doing? Probably Twitter. Just follow me on Twitter, MDO. Well, thank you uh, so much for coming on and giving me your time. It's been like an absolute pleasure getting the chance to talk about some of the stuff with you. Absolutely, man. I appreciate the conversation. So if anyone is interested in show notes for this episode, they will be found at fullstackradio.com slash 29. If you can rate and review the show on iTunes, that's always helpful. And uh, thanks again to Laracasts, as always, for sponsoring the show. If you're a PHP developer who wants to learn about all sorts of cool stuff, definitely check it out. Been a subscriber since day one. I learn new stuff there every week. So thanks again to them for sponsoring the show. Thanks for listening. See you next time.